The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse updates from the battlefront, bring you the latest news on the Russian ships snooping on key energy infrastructure, and we interview Andrei Stavnitsa, founder of Superhumans, a new Ukrainian medical centre that provides reconstruction, prosthetics and rehabilitation for soldiers who have lost their limbs in the war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 20th of April, one year and 55 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and founder of Superhumans, Andrei Stavnitsa. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Andre. Great to have you with us. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, he's in Kyiv today and the uh, and the immediate vicinity. His first visit to Kyiv since the full scale invasion. He has uh, he's been touring around. He's been up to Bucha, the region or the, the, the suburb, really, just to the north of Kyiv, which was the um, the scene of so many of those atrocities that have so far been uncovered. Und- undoubtedly, there will be others. But Bucha is the is in the uh, the collective mind at the moment. And he said, NATO stands with you today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. And then in a, in a press conference, well, that, sorry, that probably came from the press conference, but press conference with President Zelensky, he said, NATO allies, or he just reminded the world that NATO allies have delivered more than 150 billion euros of support to Ukraine since the February invasion last year. And then very interestingly, he said, Ukraine's rightful place is in the Euro-Atlantic family. Okay, so far so good. He then said Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. I mean, absolutely unequivocal. They've made these kind of statements before, but but you know, there's no no wiggle room there. So he said Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO, and over time, our support will help make this possible. He underlined the multi-year support initiative from NATO to help Ukraine transition to NATO equipment and doctrine and. Um, and that interoperability with the alliance, he said, is a testament to NATO's long-term commitment to Ukraine, which which I think it is. As I said, he visited Bucha. He also, in, in Kiev, he laid a wreath at the, the Wall of Remembrance. That's the, the, the Wall of Remembrance for the Fallen. And then he finished his visit by addressing the International Summit of Communities and Regions uh, alongside President Zelensky. And then in his remarks there, he, he praised the, the reconstruction work and said... Your determination to fight the aggressor, liberate your land and work for a brighter future says very clearly to me, Ukraine will prevail. So pretty strong words there from the Secretary General. I've seen other reporting around the bazaars that he invited President Zelensky to the next NATO summit, which is going to happen in in Vilnius in July. That that, though, that date or that invitation was not on the on the NATO site that I got the other information from. So treat that with a little bit of caution but i mean it's it's the kind of thing that you would expect even if president zelensky didn't turn up 
in person. You'd expect him to uh, to go to the, to uh, to it in um, uh, as he has done to other summits, of course, uh, virtually. So elsewhere, what's happened? There's been another wave of air attack from Russia across the country using drones, using the Iranian supplied Shahid one three six drones. The Ukrainian general staff said it had shot down twenty one of the twenty six that were fired at the country and said there were casualties, although no numbers were put on that. And then uh, in a couple of other bits and bobs before I take a break. Denmark and the Netherlands today have jointly pledged 14 more Leopard 2. Actually, this is Leopard 2A4 tanks, one of the not the most recent variant, but um, but pretty punchy. Another 14 Leopard 2 tanks for Ukraine. This came from the Danish Foreign Minister Lars Lok Rasmussen and the Acting Defence Minister Trollsland Poulsen. So these tanks are going to be bought from elsewhere, refurbished, and then sent to Ukraine in order in quarter one next year. So spring next year. Winter, spring next year, these these tanks are going to arrive. Now you could say, well, hey, that's 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 no good. They need them now. I mean, there are there are others on the way. Germany, Spain, Poland, Finland, and Portugal have all supplied or promised to supply Leopard two to Ukraine. And in February, Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands said they would pull resources to restore around a hundred old Leopard one tanks from industry stocks and send them this year. And of course, you've also got the British Challengers and the US Abrams. So tanks are going and this kind of commitment saying they'll be supplied in 2024. I mean, this is notable. I mean, it doesn't, they are saying you'll still be there. We'll make sure that and we're going to support you in the long term. This is all part of those long term security guarantees that we uh, that we need to see. So Mr. Paulson, who's the acting Danish acting defence minister, he said, it is absolutely crucial for the hope of a peaceful and secure Europe that we do not let the Ukrainians fight the battle alone. So, yeah, I, I mean, good, good statements, as you as you'd expect. There's, again, no, no wiggle room there. A couple of other bits and pieces just quickly. Sanctions. So Switzerland, it's just been announced, just broken. Switzerland have sanctioned the Wagner Group. This uh, follows on by from a similar move by by the EU last year. So they said uh, this is a quote from from the Swiss government. The Wagner Group is a Russia-based military organisation that serves as an instrument of Russian hybrid warfare. So this is a Swiss uh, economy minister. And he went on, while its legal nature is unclear, the Wagner Group forms part of a complex network of global companies operating in a range of sectors, including aviation, security, technology, commodity trading, financial sectors and influencing activities, which are linked through overlapping ownership structures and logistic networks. So another typically exciting Swiss statement, but good that they've sanctioned the the Wagner Group. It comes as Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, he's in Nicaragua trying to trying to drum up a bit of support there. He was visiting President Daniel Ortega, and he was bashing the West. Westerners under the auspices of such countries as the United States try to unite as exclusive countries, try to proliferate their hegemony, hegemony sorry, in conflicts such as, for example, in Ukraine. Fine, off you go, Sergei. He and, uh, he and President Ortega downplayed the, the impact of US sanctions that have been levied against both countries in recent weeks. Lavrov said people who are under sanctions in Russia say that it is a recognition of their progress in the protection of Russia's rights. Fine. To which I say, hey, Sergei, those of us who have been sanctioned by you, by Russia, for reporting the cowardly and pathetic actions of your armed forces, say that that is a recognition of our progress in pushing back against your warped vision for the world. But yeah, maybe I'm you know, getting off my high horse a little bit there. And just finally, 
A report from the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, reputable think tank. They are a really interesting story, actually. Do have a look at their website. They're saying uh, Russian police officers are being detained over alleged data leaks to Ukraine. They're reporting TASS, so the Russia um, state-controlled media. They said TASS reported yesterday that for several weeks now, the FSB, so that's Russia's security service, and the main directorate of the security service of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the outfit known as the MVD, have been conducting mass checks at the Moscow Central District Internal Affairs Directorate, as well as several Moscow District Police offices. And TASS are saying this was due to a leakage of data from the Russian security forces at the request of Ukrainian citizens. TASS went on to say that the FSB appears to be conducting what they say is a large-scale overhaul of domestic security organs, which sounds painful. And another Russian source said the FSB and the MVD have already detained police officers as part of this investigation. So ISW, in their analysis, they're saying, well, they're citing various Russian outlets that have reported that suspected police officers have been leaking personal data on Russian security forces to external individuals, including those in Ukraine. And this is some mass sort of security sweep up. So we, we will continue to watch that one with, uh, with great interest. And I think I better take a pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. Before we come to Andre, uh, let's go to Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent. Joe, you've got a couple of stories to us. Where would you like to start? I just want to start on Jens Stoltenberg in Kiev. As Dom said, it wasn't clear whether an invite had been extended to Vladimir Zelensky for the NATO summit in July, which is being held in Vilnius. But I, I can tell you that my sources have told me he has been invited to that summit, as he was invited to the summit that me and Dom attended last year in Madrid. At the time in Madrid, he said, look, well, this is Zelensky, he said, look, I can't come because I can't possibly leave my country at this time. And that has been the sort of similar message that has been sent to NATO and its its members, its member states, its allies, as we as we call them, ahead of the summit of illness. So he made the overseas trip to the US, to the UK, to Paris, and then to Brussels. This is Zelensky again, at a time when the conflict had kind of was really reached almost a grinding stalemate in Ukraine. He 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 was com- comfortable enough to leave his people again use this not excuse it's a will he want to stay in the country in in ukraine during the time when his armed forces are going to be carrying out what is believed to be a kind of a large-scale counter offensive so that's one of the questions raised but he will definitely he will definitely tune in but yeah no so Zelensky will at, at the very least will dial in but he's he's very appreciative of the government of lithuania because they're one of that the poles and the baltic states who have pledged a lot of assistance and basically been used by Ukraine to portray their message into the EU and NATO a lot of the time. So I'm sure he'll be very keen to get over. But then I'd like to go back because we have a few updates on the Russian ghost ships in the North Sea. Many of you might have seen it. it was on the front page of the Telegraph this morning. And we've got a few sort of added updates to that. So if you weren't listening yesterday, the this idea is there was a, a group of Scandinavian broadcasters had done a quite extensive investigation and they discovered at least 50 of these russian ghost ships being used to in surveillance operations in the north sea to look at map critical infrastructure such as wind farms undersea cables and gas and electricity connectors with basically sabotage missions in mind if nato and russia were ever to go to war so after that 
kind of all emerged. GCHQ chiefs, they warned of a surge of Russian-aligned hackers aiming to disrupt or destroy energy facilities such as power stations. So that, again, it adds to this idea that Russia as a malign actor in the world is not just using sort of conventional warfare against Ukraine. It's still looking at these hybrid ways of attacking Western assets. So not just sort of these dodgy sabotage plots on wind farms. They're also looking at using computers to hack into power stations. So we managed to get Tobias Elwood. He's the Tory chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee. And he said, look, the penny has to drop on this over Russia's constant attempts to undermine British security. And he basically used that to call for an expansion of the armed forces. Uh, And I will quote, he said, we simply can no longer protect our near seas and rightly step forward further afield with our current peacetime-sized Navy, Army and Air Force. So on Wednesday night, GCHQ chiefs warned that Western nations were battling a surge in Russian hacking activity. Oliver Dowden, the cabinet office minister, said Russian-aligned hackers who have been attacking Ukraine have also turned their attentions to the UK and the criminal hacking groups in Russia were said to have increasingly begun targeting Western countries in recent months, especially countries that are members of the NATO military alliance. And experts have said that these patriotic young Russians are carrying out cyber attacks against Western organisations and business, basically in the name of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. The National Cyber Security Centre have issued a formal warning to critical infrastructure operators about this renewed threat. Lindsay Cameron, chief executive, said if the UK is to be the safest place to live and work online, then Brazilians must urgently move to the top of our investment shopping list. So what this goes on to kind of detail is, yes, look, this kind of great story about how Russia is using what we think are fishing vessels or research vessels to spy on our critical infrastructure is actually a lot wider. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's not just these ships. It's, it's members of Russian society who are in the country. They might be posing as diplomats in NATO countries. I know the Netherlands had an incident where a Russian spy disguised as a Brazilian diplomat, was embedded in the international criminal courts and spying there. Um, so look, it's, that's, that's, that's one of the, the things that kind of the West is now becoming more aware to. And, like, and it, go, it goes back to what happened in Salisbury with the uh, Novichok poisonings of a former KGB officer and various other people who managed to get caught up. Russia is sort of using these hybrid methods to attack Western countries and well britain might have been quite awake to it actually now a whole lot more are becoming conscious of it and then i will offer a few updates because i slightly alluded to a letter sent by ursula von der leyen to the five eastern european countries that were concerned about ukrainian grain shipments into the eu and i had only just received the letter as we kind of went live so i didn't have a chance to really pour through it And so Ursula von der Leyen, in this letter to the leaders of Poland, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia and Bulgaria, set out a few proposals. She offered 100 million euros in financial aid, basically to support farmers who feel they're being hard done by when shipments of cheap Ukrainian grains are undermining their own efforts. And in the letter, she said this responds specifically to the concerns of frontline member states and stakeholders, including farmers, and will allow us to react even quicker in the future. But she also... um, sort of set out these ideas that there could be some sort of technical measures to keep the concerns of the farmers from basically developing into a 
fully-fledged called geopolitical crisis where there's protests in Brussels or protests at home and they haven't been outlined yet. But what she has warned is, look, this isn't the moment for us to come out and act like we are divided when Russia is seeking to do that itself proactively. We we have to stand behind the Ukrainians. We will We will stand behind their own farmers, but also we will stand behind the Ukrainians. But I think also now what this has exposed is a potential weakness in the application by Ukraine to join the European Union. Um, Kyiv is being fast-tracked into the EU. There's no... It's it's from applicant status to invitee to potential prospective member for a country was unprecedented. It's, it's They've not officially opened negotiations on a session yet, but we expect that to happen by the end of the year. But the fact that some of Kyiv's biggest allies, such as Poland in the EU, have complained about Ukrainian standards. They, they, there's been excuses used, like they are using fertilisers and methods or ban in the EU, which is, helps them become overly competitive. We know the reason for the EU is its vast single market, which covers its 27 members, and they all align to the same standards and the same rules and regulations when it comes to farming, other agricultural policies, manufacturing and stuff, even when it comes to like mining and producing energy. And this sort of exposes that while Ukraine has tariff and quota-free access into the EU's market, it isn't applying these standards. So now countries that are previously its allies are sort of suggesting, well, hang on a minute, we need to get Ukraine up to scratch if we are going to actually proceed with these membership talks. And that throws a bit of a spanner in the works, but I'm sure politicians in Kyiv, those I've spoken to, are still pretty adamant that they can get to a point where they start session talks by the end of the year, despite this crisis. So hopefully that doesn't derail them too much. And I'll, I'll stop there for now. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Nichols and Joe Barnes for your updates there. Um, would love to come now to our guest, Andre Stavnitsa. Andre, thank you so much for your time. Um, we introduced you as the founder of Superhumans, the Ukrainian medical centre that will provide a prosthetics reconstruction and rehabilitation. Before we talk about that, though, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your life before the start of the full-scale invasion? Well, thank you. Good evening. It's, I don't, to be honest, I don't really remember my life before this. This year has been so... <laughs> So much life-changing and it's like everything before it was really blurry but uh, i was a i was a, a businessman entrepreneur i was running family business and a few other projects and my family business is a is a port a harbor basically the largest private port in ukraine and probably second or third largest on the black sea and we were handling all kinds of stuff like containers steel fertilizers and a lot of grain as well because we have a, a joint venture with cargill so if I may comment slightly on the on the previous subject regarding Ukrainian grain, I would say that the European ban is not going to be dramatic for Ukrainian farmers. It's great that you know we'll have a support for European farmers, but to be honest, Ukrainian grain was never big scale shipped to to European destinations. It was mainly Asia and the Middle East. But anyway, we should we should continue shipping grain and. As you know, Russia is doing everything they can to sabotage the grain shipments. The commission that Russia is running in Bosphorus is basically sabotaging every vessel 
that goes out of Ukraine should be inspected. And this inspection takes more than a month right now. So an average average waiting time for a vessel with grain that is being inspected in Turkey is a month. And that makes us less competitive on global markets, which brought us to a point where Russia has exported twice as much grain as Ukraine than Ukraine. Um, this is basically the opposite what what the reality was before the war. So Ukraine would export double double the volume. Unfortunately, this is not the case. And you know they're they're inspecting vessels full of grain for for weapons being exported out of Ukraine. It makes no sense. And then Russian vessels are just passing by without any any stops or any delays. That's really interesting, Andre. Thanks for that extra context there. Can you tell us? I mean, you mentioned that. Life before the full-scale invasion just feels like a blur. So talk to us about what happened to you in the early months of the war. Well, uh, when the war started, my, my family business got closed immediately because the sea was closed. But even if it wouldn't, I couldn't get my head around business at all, and I, and I still can't. I'm, I'm, I'm totally doing, doing humanitarian stuff. One of the biggest actions that we started was Help Ukraine Center, where we opened a number of warehouses where people from all over the world could deliver help, like food, medication, clothes, etc. And then we would take it with our trucks and our trains all the way to the front line and make sure it would get to the most vulnerable part of, of the population. And it was working perfectly for several months. And we did thousands and thousands of trucks. Hundreds of volunteers were working with us. And it was it was a relief for them because the only way how you can decrease amount of pain that that you feel is really by working as much as you can and these people from a waiter to i don't know wives of ukrainian top business people were coming to the warehouses and and working day and night just to volume down their pain a little bit so what happened next is we realized that this business this project is not a business but this project is running smoothly and we needed to to start looking ahead of the curve and thinking ahead of the curve so we realized that as uh, in many countries where the war happens, the next big thing, unfortunately, is going to be people without limbs. So civilians and military who have lost their limbs. Reconstruction surgeries, because obviously government of Ukraine doesn't have enough time and resources to, to take care of this. The government only stabilizes people, make sure you know the, the soldier or the civilian is alive and doesn't really care about the aesthetic part of it with their face or their body or their limbs. And the third part is PTSD, which is going to be probably the biggest subject for for the Ukraine. But I'll, I'll touch upon this on PTSD a bit early, if you don't mind. Of course, of course. So talk to us about superhumans. Where did the project come from? What, what are you doing right now? And um, what, and talk a little bit more about why it's needed in, in, in the here and now. Absolutely. So there at the moment, the, the casualties of this horrible war are classified. But according to our estimations, there are more than 12,000 people already who are ex- waiting for prosthetics, who have lost one of their limbs and still do not have a prosthetics. And the reason for that is because a lot of amputations are being done on the front line or close to the front line in cities like Dnipro or Kharkiv. And since Bakhmut is really intense right now, the amount of patients is horrible and the the amputations are done poorly. So almost every third amputation has to be redone, either because it's a dirty amputation 
or because there is an infection or because there is not enough fat or the scar is on the wrong side and then you cannot put prosthetics on it. So a lot of these people who have suffered a lot, they need to have their limbs re-amputated. And our goal is to, first of all, to teach doctors closer to the front line how to, how to make proper amputations. And secondly, to install free of charge um, the best prosthetics there are for their hands and their legs. So the project is uh, backed by the First Lady of Ukraine, Madame Zelenska. She is on the board. Uh, Minister of Health is on the board. We have um, Sir Richard Branson supporting us. He was he was visiting us last week, in fact, on his way to to see President Zelensky. We have Sting and Trudy Styler who are supporting us as well, and we are basically fundraising for prosthetics. So we're in the next couple of weeks we're launching a special internet online shop where anyone can buy a leg or an arm for a Ukrainian hero. It doesn't matter civilian or or military. We don't distinguish between them. We have kids, we have women, we have men, everyone. And we expect to make about, uh, to have about 3,000 patients per year. And we are installing prosthetics for them. The leg prosthetics are coming from Germany. They're called Ottobock. The bionic arms, which I'm really, really proud of, are coming from the UK. The company is called Open Bionics. And um, it's been unbelievably rewarding to see our first patients you know, wearing this hand because it's very intuitive to teach this hand to, to operate. And when you see a person who's been without an arm for months and months, finally getting a bionic arm, you know, he or she starts running around the room, grabbing a bottle of water or, or a headset or, or a charger and then operating a bionic arm for the first time in months. This is totally unbelievable feeling. It gives you so much energy and so much motivation to continue. And a lot of our patients have extremely high spirits. So every time I talk to them, I have a, a, a huge resource of energy for months and months of restless work. Andre, could you tell us a little bit more about some of the people you've been helping? What, what are their stories? Well, I have a few. Maybe I'll start with, with a 19-year-old Ruslana. And she's coming from the same city as I, Odessa. And she has volunteered almost at the beginning of the conflict to be a medic. She was 18 back then. And she decided to go for this because both of her parents were actually from the military. So she started to participate. And unfortunately, she was heavily wounded next to the city of Kherson. But lucky enough that the ambulance was driving nearby and she was evacuated. She has undergone five or six surgeries. Um, and um, a couple of days ago, we installed her our leg. And uh, now she's uh, on a photo from the opening. She's walking next to the to Madame Zelenska and she's super happy and she's probably staying to work with us. And we try to, we try to find jobs for our patients, firstly, within Superhuman Center. And one of, our, one of the guys I'm most proudly of is a, is a triple amputee who is now joining us as a psychologist of the first, of the first contact. Um, maybe another person I can tell you about is a 24-year-old Dennis, who was badly, badly injured in Bakhmut. And he had to be carried by his, by his fellow servicemen uh, about two kilometers for evacuation, because the amount of doctors and medevac is definitely not enough. 
So he's been carried for two kilometers. He's been singing Ukrainian anthem <laughs> and saying goodbye to his to his friends. But eventually he got he got evacuated. He got stabilized, and he got a beautiful prosthetics from us. So now he's um, going to be a psycholo- He's going to go with the psychological um, education. He's going to join the university. Mr. Howard Buffett has agreed to pay his um, his education and. The guy is super happy because this this was his dream. I have a number of stories like this, but and I, I'll try to make a video out of it so that I can send it to you. A lot of stories like this finish with um, with this with a, with a strange phrase. A lot of these people want to go back to the front line because they have this this sense of enormous debt towards their 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 brothers and sisters in the in the army. Because mainly they were evacuated by, by by their friends, not by the medicals, by the medics. And the only way how they can repay is really to go back and fight next to them. In some in some areas it is not possible, but they because I mean the, the, the for example the condition of their health is not good enough. But they still they still go there despite the despite that the commander is not allowing them and they do whatever they wash floors or they supply food whatever but they want to be they want to repay this somehow about 80% of the of the military people that are our clients all of them want to go back Andre, can I ask, just to turn the question around, actually, could you tell us a little bit about the people that work with you at Superhumans? What are their backgrounds and, and why did they get involved? Well, this project has been a magnet. The CEO of the project is Olga Rudneva. She's been in charity for 18 years. She's been in anti-AIDS in Ukraine. And then she read my Facebook post and she decided to join and she's super happy and super energetic. She says this is the most important thing she's done in her life or she's doing in her life. I, I couldn't agree more, to be quite honest. Our medical director is a very famous doctor from, um, from the Ukraine. He was the head of NHS in Ukraine. And before that, he was running a chain of uh, private hospitals. We have um, Melinda Herring, who was the deputy head of Atlantic Council, deputy director in uh, she's our she's the head of our u.s operations we have anastasia Zhuk, and she's been in marketing and pr so she's running same thing here basically uh, we have philip grushko who is um ex-pricewaterhouse employee who is taking care of the financials and the fundraising and and myself and about 80 more super talented people who are running the show in Lviv, be it rehabilitologists, doctors of all kinds, uh, psychologists, you name it. The centre opened last week. Could you tell us a little bit about that day? What did it mean for you? And what are your plans now over the next year? How do you expand and do more? All right. Um, so, yeah, the centre was open. We had very uh, various guests, a lot of ambassadors, Minister of Health of France, the First Lady, obviously, Mr. Buffett, and many, many more. The, the center is, is running right now, and we are expanding. So we are opening five more similar centers across Ukraine, but much closer to the front line, in order to, to get the patients from there. We understand that the need is much, much worse than, than what we can cover at the moment. So we are we're going to be continuing to fundraise for prosthetics, and we are we are building right now the the department for reconstruction surgeries 
because a lot of people are they need they need to fix their faces their their limbs their body and there is not so much expertise about it so what i'm doing right now is i'm traveling around the world and trying to get the best doctors there are currently i'm in tokyo talking to reconstruction surgeons here and getting them to work in the ukraine on a, on a on a tour basis so that they can come teach local doctors and leave and then maybe come again after a couple of months like a tour schedule training because the biggest part of our center is educational part we want to bring the expertise into ukraine that does not exist we succeeded already with prosthetics it's running and we have the best rehabilitologists and prosthetists there are so now we're working on surgeons who can do reconstructive surgery and obviously fundraising too so. You mentioned earlier PTSD, um, and you've spoken a lot about prosthetics and rehabilitation. Would you like to talk a little bit more about 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 PTSD and what you see? Oh, this is probably the biggest subject, and to be quite honest, we we haven't touched too much upon it. So, we have one and a half million people in combat right now. This is unprecedented. So, for the Soviet Union back at this time. There was 600,000 people fighting over the period of 11 years. And the, the aftermatch of Afghanistan, for every person who lived in the Soviet Union, uh, all of them know that it was really dramatic. These guys came back from Afghanistan. They were severely traumatized. They became the core. They were very brave people, very professional. But the Soviet Union basically broke down. And these people were left alone, meaning they would join the mafia. And for the next decade probably from 1991 till early 2000s, these people were the core of Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, whatever, Soviet Union, mafia. So in order for this not to happen, we have to make sure that we have a national program developed how to treat PTSD. And PTSD, obviously, is not only for military people. It's a lot about civilians. So I estimate we have millions of people who already have PTSD but don't know about it. We have to make sure we diagnose them. We have to make sure we treat them. Otherwise, it's going to be a very difficult time after the war. And now, for recent studies, show an incredible thing. It says if the PTSD is not treated, uh, your your children can inherit it. So it's genetically transferred. Transferred. And I don't know if I need to to speak about the the consequences of untreated PTSD, but that's suicide is the least is the least bad thing that can happen. It, it, it's increase in domestic violence, in, in car accidents, in work accidents. It's basically, it's a, it's a very heavy thing. So this will be the next big thing for us as soon as we're done with the reconstruction surgeries. Thanks, Andre. Dom and Joe, I know you've got some questions as well. Shall I go to Joe Barnes first? Yeah, so I'll start on the PTSD issue. Because when I, so when I was last out in Ukraine, I visited a, a fair amount of hospitals as I wrote about how Ukraine's healthcare system was, how it ramped up to deal with the number of casualties, both civilian and militarily. And I, I kept on asking the question about PTSD and whether there was a system capable of handling it, because like it eventually will turn out into a sort of new crisis in Ukraine, as it did in the UK and US and other NATO countries that were involved in Afghanistan and Iraq and various other wars there. So I was just wondering, do you see that experience there already to deal with that potential crisis? Or do you think actually that's one area where Western governments could step up their 
sort of level of assistance for Ukraine because um, that's one one area where they have experience and they could send experts to help train you what like they're training Ukrainian soldiers they could train Ukrainian medics and psychologists to help alleviate that problem just wondering what your opinion on that is since you're working on it so closely it's a great question thank you so much so it is happening already. We've visited your Minister of Healthcare, uh, Minister Barclay, and we had a very constructive meeting with um, people from NHS and from the military. So we're getting consultancy to create our own protocols. However, with PTSD, unlike unlike the prosthetics and the reconstructions, we're, we're kind of all the same on the inside, but not in the brain, because the PTSD has a cultural and, and, and geographical peculiarities that need to be addressed by local specialists. So what we're doing is basically we're, we're trying to get the most progressive and the most proven protocols and then adapt it in Ukraine to, to the local mentality, to local culture and local people. And this is already happening because um, we, need, we need to address it in, in, in multiple layers. So it's, it's a different thing for, for a military man it's a different thing for a civilian. It's a totally different thing for a child. And anyone who has had a rocket flying over them is already subject to PTSD. So I would say if we want a peaceful, balanced country and people to rebuild it, we need to start addressing it now. And I wouldn't refuse any help in the concern. I think this is probably one of the most important things. You know, we can rebuild any infrastructure, any bridges or railways, but if we don't have the people... If the people are not rebuilt physically and mentally, all of all of the uh, all of the assets, all of the infrastructure doesn't make any sense. It's just not going to work. So we have to start from the people. We have to rebuild Ukrainians, and they will rebuild their country. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, really fascinating. And then one more question, um, which is probably slightly more wider is um, i want to dig into the entrepreneurship entrepreneurship that ukrainians have shown as, as, as you when you were introducing yourself you're a, a regular businessman and you've swapped you've swapped to now helping like militarily and humanitarianly there was a great story uh, that channel 4 did in the uk the other day about a ukrainian who'd lived in britain for a number of years who had turned to basically find companies in the uk who provide armored vehicles and tanks normally to film companies in the production of kind of war movies and uh, TV programs and the like, but was then getting them and buying them and then shipping them to Ukraine. So I'm just wondering, is it something about just Ukrainians and their ability to sort of adapt and one of the methods of fighting adversity is just being able to show a real entrepreneurial spirit or is it is it something that you've all had to learn the hard way in a very short amount of time? Another great question, but uh, I have no answer for you, unfortunately. Um, this is my first and hopefully last war. So I, I, there is nothing I can, how I can compare it. And I, would, I have my strong belief that, God forbid, you would be in my place. You would be, you would be doing the same, if not more. So uh, I think Ukrainians are super brave. Not only the military, but also the, the business and, and civil society because I see how many efforts everyone is is um, applying towards our victory. But probably this is because we have no choice. We're fighting on our land and for our land. So I, I think you'd do the same. Andre, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for, for joining us today and for, for sharing your experiences and your and your vision. And I guess it must be really late in Tokyo right now. So so thanks thanks so much for that. 
the British experience in recent conflicts, Iraq, Afghanistan, I'm thinking in particular, is that many of the traumatic amputations that happened were lower limb because of the IED threat, the improvised explosive device threat. And I, I wonder if, if you're seeing a similar proportion of lower limb to arm injuries. I think I, it's probably more equal, I would imagine, in the kind of conventional conflict. But I just wonder, our experience was that was that with advances in medical science, many people who would have died in earlier conflicts, maybe even just 20 or 30 years ago, those that would have died were living. But that then put a huge strain on the rest of the medical infrastructure. And I just wonder, are you seeing that kind of, are you having that experience in Ukraine? Are you seeing people who who would otherwise might have died till 20 years ago, but who now are kind of stuck in the bottleneck looking for looking for, to access those other services? Oh, well, I would say that a lot of the amputations that we have now are are from the art- artillery uh, shots. So there is no particular area like if you would have in a, in a close combat where you have your, your arm on the, on the machine gun and then this arm is the one that has the most vulnerable, is the most vulnerable area of your, of your body and then it's mainly shot. No, it's, it can be any part of the body right now plus all these dirty amputations, meaning <laughs> you can have a wrist... Uh, damaged wrist, but then after eight amputations, and I know a person with 12 amputations or re-amputations, you would get all the way to the shoulder. So it's, the statistics is not very, it's not very clear, but also it's classified. So we cannot make a proper, a proper judgment here. Also on, on, you know, what is happening right now in Ukraine is the hottest conflict on earth. Therefore, the the, the 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 people that receive prosthetics are youngsters unlike unlike what the world has seen for many years so we have to make sure that the prosthetics that we make are going to serve them for the next 50 60 years maybe more whereas if you if you look at amputations in US and UK most of these amputations are diabetes driven and and they're for people you know 60 plus meaning what well, I mean like 10 or 20 years left to 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 use it so it's a totally different story, and and every doctor I talk to, I, I invite them to to come to Ukraine, to come to Lviv, which is considered the safest part, and to join, to bring trainees, because, I mean, we learn the hard way, but we should also make the most use of it, and we, we should we should make sure that doctors from other countries are learning by by watching what is happening, by helping us, but also training, unfortunately. So the Ukrainian conflict is quite quite different to to what has been in in Afghanistan, for example. Yeah, so I've, I've no, no doubt. I, I visited a number of service personnel who had traumatic amputation and, and required prosthetics and had some friends as well. And actually the um, the spirit amongst them was was hugely impressive and, and humbling. I think you touched on this a bit earlier. And I just want to... I mean, one of the things that, that I kept hearing time and time again was how... They were looking to the future. These are British service personnel looking to the future and saying things like, I'm going to join the Team GB Paralympic squad. I'm going to get into the Invictus Games, that, that kind of thing. Are, are you seeing the same thing? Are you, are you hearing Ukrainian service personnel already looking to what, what they're going to do now? And has, has, has anyone from the Invictus Games approached you at all? No, I, I hope it's going to happen. And if, if, I, if I would be on the organizing committee, I would say that the next Invictus game after the war uh, should be should be in Ukraine. However, the most of our patients have one dream. They want to go back to the to the front line. And if we install a you know top notch 
bionic arm for them. And we tell them, okay, this is going to work like this and like that. But I mean, it's not a good idea to take it to the front line. It's dirty. You need to charge it. It's messy. It's wet, etc. And they say, well, look, I don't care. As long as I can do one movement with my index finger, it's, it works for me. So 80%, maybe even more, maybe only 80 speak about it, but 80% definitely want to go back to, to the front line and, and, you know, make everything possible to, to bring it all to the end. Well, thank you, Dom and Joe, for your questions. Andre, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to, to hear? I think it's important to, to keep the war on the raiders. Uh, a human being is an extremely adaptable person, and the war in Ukraine starts moving down uh, on the global agenda and in, in uh, UK is probably is probably no exception so I just want to stress once again that you know we cannot win this war without you and it's extremely important that you guys you know keep supporting us we are very thankful and uh, you know Ukraine Ukraine and Ukrainian people deserve to be helped so I, I just hope we can bring it all to an end soonest that's that's my bottom line well, Andre, thank you so much for your time. It's been really moving and, and fascinating to hear from you. I'll just go to Dom and Joe's final thoughts to close this episode. And then, Andre, if you have a final thought after that, you'd be more than welcome to share. So I'll go to uh, Joe or Dom first. So, yeah, I just want to say something that Andre kind of said. Um, and it is, it is the fact that kind of um, none of us are having to live this. Uh, and he said, uh, like God, God willing, it doesn't happen to you. And I, I, I just can't. I, you have to wholeheartedly agree with that statement. We, we, we are incredibly lucky that we will likely never go through anything like this. Well, definitely a, a ground war in Britain again. So yeah, it's just, it's just something I can never put my finger on about and how we can really fathom what is going on in Ukraine. And it's it's increasingly. Sort of, it's there are lots of incredible stories and lots of incredible things happening, but maybe sometimes we do underestimate the human toll of the war on children, on on just regular regular people and business people, whether it be families or when we're reporting kind of the stories about great feats of military expertise shown by the Ukrainian armed forces. Sometimes we do forget about the everyday person in Ukraine at times, and yeah, hopefully we can carry on reporting that and trying to push that agenda to show that people are being affected by this conflict and that is one of the great reasons that apart from kind of territorial sovereignty is that we we are basically doing this to help innocent and regular people everyday people on on the streets yeah that's just kind of what i thought i'd say there thank you very much joe dom nichols Thanks. I'll just finish by um, saying thanks to Michelle, who's, who's messaged literally in the last couple of minutes listening to this, who has uh, has directed me to a page. I'll retweet it, that there is already a movement supporting uh, Ukrainian service personnel in their bid to, to participate in the Invictus Games. So I will retweet that and we will follow that up and, and hopefully that can become a thing. But um, Andre, thank you so much for your, for your time. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll continue to make those links and best of luck in Tokyo. Thank you, Dom and Joe. Andre Sevnitsev, would you like, as our guest, the very final words? No, I think I, I, I said it all. I, I, I would like to thank, thank you once again for covering as much as you do on Ukraine. And Ukraine will prevail. I have no doubt about it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk 
forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.